because we focus only and solely on youth, no adults, nothing outside of directed free skiing, the ability to use and manage terrain to create different types of environments to facilitate better training helps us to deliver on better winter sports enthusiasts and competitors. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. It's the height of summer, but we're going to keep at this. Still plenty to talk about, including the question of the day. How do we make skiing more diverse? Before we get to that, I want to remind you to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at skiing.substack.com if you have not done that already. That is the very best way to get the most out of the storm. Episode 18, Sean Mellier, President and CEO of Winter for Kids. What usually happens when a ski area is abandoned? Sometimes they fade away. Sometimes they get repurposed for other things. Sometimes they come back. In northern New Jersey, adjacent to Mountain Creek, sits one of the coolest lost ski area stories that I'm aware of. About five years ago, an abandoned ski area that was once known as Hidden Valley was renamed the National Winter Activity Center and revitalized by an organization called Winter for Kids. They stripped the place down to the studs and rebuilt it with one purpose in mind. Get kids skiing. This place is amazing. They go into the inner cities, partner with schools and community organizations, and bring groups of kids who otherwise probably never would have skied out to their mountain. These are not one-off lessons either. These are extended programs built to make skiers, programs that give them a sense of belonging and inclusion. As the ski industry finally confronts its diversity problem, part of the solution is sitting right in plain sight in North Jersey. They've solved a lot of the hard problems already at the mountain. How do you get kids to the mountain? How do you eliminate the chaos and get them to the snow without going through rental shed hell? How do you get them to love skiing? How do you get them to come back? My guest today has spent the past several years laser focused on answering all these questions. And he has a really good story to tell. Let's hear it. My guest today is the founder and CEO of Winter for Kids. Since its founding in 2015, the organization has welcomed more than 10,000 school-aged children to its skiing, snowboarding, and Nordic programs, which provide mentor-based learning, healthy meals, and clothing and equipment. He is also the founder and former CEO and chair of the board of directors of the National Winter Sports Foundation, as well as a former finance executive. He also served eight years in the U.S. Marine Corps. Sean Mellier is my guest. Sean, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, good morning, Stuart. I'm glad to be here. So let's get right into this. What is Winter for Kids, and what is your organization's mission? Yeah, thanks, Stuart. You know, Winter for Kids, we exist uh, to improve the lives of all youth by providing um, increased, moderate to vigorous activity during the winter months, opportunities for them to master snow and individual skills in a safe environment with healthy foods, appropriate equipment, mentoring, and additional learning for those who do not traditionally have access to outdoor wood activities. Our mission says to improve the lives, health, and fitness of youth through winter activities. Well, you just touched on the giving access to folks who don't typically or traditionally have access to it. That diversity and the lack of it in skiing has become a central topic in the industry recently since the nationwide protests against the murder of George Floyd systemic racism and police violence. We'll talk a little bit more, Sean, about that industry response later, 
but this seems to be something that your organization is tailored to help address by increasing diversity among participants. Um, your website focuses more on youth than diversity specifically, but how deliberately do you focus on bringing more diverse youth into skiing, and how central is that to your mission? Yeah, that's a good question, Stuart, given the times we're in. I, I think in, in, from our inception, the the intent was to make sure that all kids who who don't traditionally have, traditionally have access, and, and those are, are defined as surely there's certain groups, ethnic groups, that don't traditionally have access, blacks, Latinx, et cetera, urban youth, you know, rural youth. And so it was really our intention to make sure that our core platform was to make sure that we had an environment where these participants were not only welcome, but they were encouraged and energized to embrace winter sports, as we all do. So um, while we you don't teach diversity and inclusion, but you do talk about equity and access, there's no doubt that winter for kids creates that environment of access, but also equity so that um, every kid gets a, an equal opportunity to pursue dreams. And, and the interesting part of it, so I wanted to go back to Winter for Kids, right, is programs. We're also a physical facility and a team of committed individuals. Winter for Kids, the National Wind Activity Center are all one and the same, but for purposes of everybody, the National Wind Activity Center is the physical facility upon which Winter for Kids programs are delivered. When you're bringing these kids in, these, these kids that haven't traditionally had access, uh, presumably in a lot of cases uh, they're coming from families who don't ski. Do, do you hear from the kids like, oh, I just never thought about skiing as something that I was allowed to do? Right. I think that, that there, are, there have been barriers to um, winter activities. Surely, one of the barriers to it is visibility. You know, if you don't mm -hmm. see mountains, why would you ever choose to go there? The other thing is, is the social side. If my friends and family do not participate in there, why would I ever think about it? Of course, there is the location of geographies, but even the economic access. So, you know, um, in, in I guess uh, implicitly what happens is with winter activities is that if you don't if you don't see it you don't do it. I grew up in the Bronx. Mm -hmm. I grew up in the projects. I'm a I'm an asphalt kid. I played basketball. I never right. thought of, of of any type of winter activities except for maybe playing in the street uh, uh, once or twice after the snow fell and before it got dirty. You know, in New Jersey we're not that far away, but for most of those kids the idea of of choosing something like this uh, just wasn't there. Yeah, it's funny because I think when most people think of New Jersey, they think of, you know, strip mall, divided highway, uh, you know, urban New Jersey. And the truth is there's a lot of really beautiful rural parts of that state. And the area you're in, Vernon, is, is terrific. I mean, I, I haven't been to your center, but I've been to Mountain Creek right next door. And you get up there and the views looking north are, are really tremendous. So you're not that far away, really, if you can just figure out a way to get them to the mountains, right? Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting because I think, you know, um, 
New Jersey, the Garden State, but the Highlands, right? And and you brought that up. We have lakes, we have mountains, we have lots of outdoor activities, and they're not that far removed. Maybe an hour and seven minutes from Midtown. Mm. A little bit further for you in Brooklyn, but, yeah. but if you're coming from <laughs> Midtown, you can get here in an hour and seven minutes. And I think that that um, our our opportunity to create this space, the National One Activity Center, and the things that take place in this place. Winter for Kids is an extraordinary use of natural resources to change lives. So I want to get a little bit more into the center and what you actually do there in a bit, but but let's talk about the founding first. So the National Winter Activity Center opened in New Jersey in 2015, but it formed out of conversations that started as far back as 2009 and 10 with some national SKU organizations. Take us back here, Sean. How did Winter for Kids come to exist? You know, I've been involved in, in winter sports um, late in life, but always as a committed volunteer and and a proponent of, first of all, enjoying it, but also being able to share it in a thoughtful and sustainable way with kids and colleagues. So around 2009, I got a phone call from two members from um, U.S. Ski and Snowboard who wanted to discuss a an initiative that they wanted to pursue around urban youth. We um, had some conversations and decided it was best to understand um, how could you engage urban youth in this sport in a sustainable fashion uh, with their support and resources. Um, I was tasked to do a study and we, we went out and interviewed a number of youth-serving organizations that are connected to win activities. Um, surely Nordic Rocks in the Midwest, right? We have mm-hmm. the YES program in Boston. You have SOS Outreach, right, in Colorado and others about how they did that to come up with best practices. We did. You know, mm-hmm. the, the keys were you had to have, of course, a place for these kids to go to. The second thing that was important as a best practice, that rather than take on the task of youth development to partner with organizations who had youth development as their core competency and mission, and then to have some bridge between those that know winter activities and those that don't, so it wasn't so much of an uphill learning curve. And we came also to the conclusion that there were three ways of of doing that best model. You could have a mountain-based program where a mountain itself did that. You could have a nonprofit organization-based program, something like YES, that takes kids uh, from a program they have to mountains that are local to Boston. Or you could Mm -hmm. have a hybrid. We um, got to eventually um, calendar to present our finding and recommendations, which didn't occur at the time. And I, and I took those, the, the knowledge that we had gained, and with the support of the president of the National Brotherhood of Skiers at the time, Heyman Jahi, trustees from U.S. Ski and Snowboard, the leadership of SIA at the time, we decided to take what we had found out and build an organization around that with the idea of creating a model and to get 100,000 kids a year 
into the sport in a sustainable fashion. Wow. And out of that came the National Winter Sports Education Foundation, which is now Share Winter. But that founding board was interesting because, you know, I mentioned we had the CEO of the largest youth development organization in the United States. That was Jack Lund and the YMCA Greater New York. David Enjemy from uh, SIA, a, a trustee from the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Foundation, um, the president of the MBS, a parent um, who had a, um, a son who competed, a number of MBS representatives, uh, myself, and a representative from U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and we launched that organization, and, and we funded um, places like um, Ted Ligley Learn to Ski, Nordic Rocks, um, Boston Ski Party had a, a um, youth group that, that was competing in, oh, the recreational side, NASCAR championships, and a number mm -hmm. of organizations, and with the funding that um, the board collectively raised of about a couple of hundred thousand dollars. During that time, uh, what Hidden Valley, which is where Winter for Kids is now, had gone bankrupt and was defunct for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And as a board, we chose to explore what could we do with this facility. At the time, me being the chair and CEO of National Winter Sports Education Foundation, my thoughts were, um, I don't know exactly where that would go and how it could be done commercially. Mm -hmm. But we did come to the conclusion that we could take the mission of the National Winter Sports Education Foundation and, in addition to funding organizations, create a physical entity which would be the manifestation of all of those best practices that we had embraced as NWSCF. We did a pilot in um, 2015 with 180 kids from YMCA's and um, a local NBS club, Thrill Seekers. We went out and spoke to the YMCA's of New Jersey, in New York, high school racing, boys and girls clubs that determined that if we build it, would they come? Right. And we got letters and commitments for 3,000 participants, which allowed the board, all of us, to see this was a, a, a plausible idea. We could deliver on this. And then the question, what would it take? And um, we um, looked at the facilities that were there mm -hmm. uh, and the investment that was necessary to make them serviceable. Overlay that with the intention that when we do this, we want to do it so that it is sustainable for 50 years. So in that, making the decision to choose to do the right things technologically and infrastructure-wise so that it would be sustainable and to put into place components to mitigate the location, which is New Jersey, and its relative Oh, exposure to the weather. Right. <laughs> right? And so yeah. um, we launched National Winter Activity Center within NWSCF, 
but we spun it off because it became clear that the two organizations, while they were complementary, could create some conflict in, in being so close, and henceforth, as of July 30, 2014, we um, launched the National One Activity Center as a 501c3. And I know the next you know, question you might ask is, so yeah. what did we do with with the facilities that were here? So we we removed all of the lifts and put in two brand new lifts, a quad and a triple. We redid all of the snowmaking from the inside the ground up and created the, the a fully automated snowmaking system that allows us to 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 manage the challenges of wintertime in New Jersey in a way that we could do it the most efficient and effective way. So we can do it three people that it normally would take 30, and it's all managed by laptops, cell phones, mm. iPads. Um, we re-engineered the trails so that they were appropriate for learning but also for competition as we felt that with this resource in New Jersey being 67 miles from Midtown, that we could create a venue that not only served the participating organizations, but could be a venue that would support high-level competitive events as well as all the levels below that from recreation to organize with U.S. Ski and Snowboard, FIS, et cetera, and henceforth our two programs one for academics, the academy, which is our learn program, and athletics, which is our competition program. And that was, I guess, oh, we're in our sixth year now. And since right. then we added on um, a Nordic facility with snowmaking and lights and, the, and a lodge up there to support that. We gutted the lodge that's in existence. And we're in, in the last few months of finishing a lodge addition, which adds another 27,000 square feet or so to our usable capacity. This is one of the most remarkable parts of this to me, is that Winter for Kids has its own ski area, the National Winter Activity Center, formerly Hidden Valley, uh, which is right around the corner from Mountain Creek, as I mentioned, in New Jersey. I, I want to just get a little bit more into these components, Sean, because I have a lot of people who listen to this podcast who are super into chairlifts. So I know they're going to want me to ask you, what was the lift system like when you got there? And what did you replace it with? I know you said a triple in a, in a quad, but can you tell us a little bit more about those lifts? Wow, yeah. Um, so I had worked here as a coach, a Raisley coach, prior to mm -hmm. Hidden Valley shut, being shut down. Um, Hidden Valley was founded in the 70s. I believe those initial lifts were not new in the 70s. So okay. by the time we got engaged there, they were not serviceable. Okay. So um, we actually put in fixed grip lifts, right, a quad for mm -hmm. the, what, what the competition trail, which is actually called Shiffy's Turn, and mm -hmm. you should ask about that later on. And then uh, a triple that services the um, the beginner area and lower intermediate area, and mm -hmm. we also added two surface lifts, uh, carpet, okay. to give us more access on um, our competition trail or Shiffy's turn, and also on our beginner area. 
And we worked with leaders in the industry who, when we first approached them with this project, I'm sure were a little bit hmm, ambivalent. <laughs> um, uh, but they were from HKD, you know, and Charles Santry to Tom Wells in designing and doing all of the uh, earthwork to Heitler Houston, which was the architect, to um, all of those experts worked uh, with me and us to put in place a substantial environment that we knew would last for 50 years or so or more. And then with the town, which embraced us, and helped us develop a resource that's not only effective and efficient, but also, I believe, a, a regional resource that's serving communities throughout New Jersey, New York, and even some distant communities. Yeah, I, I mean, it, the, the amount of work you put into it is obvious. You mentioned the, the fickle weather in New Jersey, and I'm always amazed when I go out to Mountain Creek. I have a season pass out there. So I'm out there a lot, and, you know, during the week, it'll just be rain, rain, you know, temperatures in the mid-40s. And I go out to Mountain Creek, and they're just buried. They do a really good job. Uh, but then when I drive back from Mountain Creek, when I'm heading back toward the city up Highway 515, I look over to the left, and there is your center. And the the coverage looks awesome from a distance. Like, wow, it's really impressive. So that snowmaking system you said you put in place, what kind of technology or what brand are you using that you're able to run that whole thing with, like you said, three people where it might have taken 30 people before. Yeah, it's um, so our our objective was to make sure that we could open up in January for our program every year, period. That was the objective, and the system was designed to do that. So HKD, which mm -hmm. um, um, Charles Santry and his team designed a system that one allowed us to get the coverage, and here's an interesting thing to it. Uh, one of the metrics was um, 18 inches over the 30 acres within five to seven days, wow. given the temperatures. And and so we redid literally. I mean, ran a mile of of, of pipe from our lake source to the new pump house and facility, and then ran new pipe, new electricals, all the utilities up the trails, the the competition competition trail, which is called Shifty's Turn. I keep bringing that back up um, <laughs> with with um, snow, you know, automated snow guns, which will allow us to service that trail, which is the one of the widest trails in the country. At, at its narrowest point, it's 75 meters wide, which allows us to do some incredible events. But the power, right, the water source, the ability for us to control the water source so we can dictate the surface of it, and then stick guns, about 65 of them on the other trails, and some portable guns, put that together with Prenoff, which Prenoff was really, really great with groomers. Um, we're able to, to um, deliver an environment that supports all of our learning program, all our competitive um, training and, and, and competition venues in a most efficient and effective way. And because we focus only and solely on youth, no adults, not even my team, 
Mm-hmm. Only training and development, nothing outside of directed free skiing. Um, and because everything is focused on the programs, the amount of volume the kids get for training, both competitively and learning, the ability to use and manage terrain to create different types of environments to facilitate better training helps us to deliver on better winter sports enthusiasts and competitors. It's fun, and we are excited, and I have a great team of individuals who are and teammates um, who work very, very hard to make sure that we deliver the best experience and the safest out there. So one of the things I want us to be is taking a tagline from Disney and just tweaking a little bit. You know, Disney is the happiest place in the world, and we surely are always going to be the happiest, but we want to make sure that we're the safest and healthiest environment and experience for all of our participants, all of our staff, all of our visitors. You know, none of what you described is easy, right? Running a ski area is hard even for seasoned operators. And, and But one of the questions I was going to ask you is why why go through all this? Why do all this? You know, Mountain Creek's right there. It's got great lift infrastructure. It's got great facilities. Why not just partner with them? But I think you just answered my question. It is As nice, as built up as Mountain Creek is, it's a zoo, right? And, and there's there's a lot of people there who don't know what they're doing and they're going way too fast and you don't have that environment you just described where you're, the kids are truly able to focus on the learning experience without all the distractions of a crazy weekend ski resort, right? Is that the primary advantage of having your own center and, and is that what makes it worth all of the maintenance and all of the challenges of operating in the in, in New Jersey, which is frankly not an easy place to operate a ski resort, which I don't need to tell you. Yeah, it's interesting. I so most of my life, Stuart, I've ended up as I look back on it, I've done a lot of things and had been blessed with a lot of accomplishment, mostly because I didn't know I was not supposed to do it. Because had I had the experiences as you described, probably would not have chosen to do this. It would have seemed you know, implausible. I think that our thoughts about getting more kids into the sport, non-traditional populations, the intention was always to grow the sport, which is interesting. I had a conversation with a, an executive from one of the larger pro, um, resort companies around. And as a side, I asked him, and this is something that I, I'll pose to you, kind of, Stuart, not trying to flip it back on you, but what does it cost to create a new winter activity customer? Interesting question, isn't it? The answer that I heard was, um, we don't do that. Our business is to support those existing skiers and go after the lapsed skiers. And um, that there really isn't anybody in the industry really or an entity focused on getting more skiers in, right, if you have to think about it. So let's go back to what you asked. Our objective was to do that. So let's let's talk about the challenges to new winter sports enthusiasts. 
conversion of a lifetime enthusiast, right, from a first-time skier, numbers between, what, 12 19%? Is that fair? Yeah, I've heard different numbers, but that's about an average that I've heard. Yeah, this individual said probably in the teens, right? So let's use let's use 12%. So that means for every 100 people who take a ski lesson, only 12 of them stay with the sport. Why? Learning to ski is challenging at best, right? right. You know, and and, and the, the way we create and deliver instruction is transactional versus relational. What I mean by that is we get them in, we give them a lesson, and then we point them in the direction up the list and say, go for it, right? And a lot of them go for it, and they never come back, right? Out of 100, uh, 88 of them are not coming back. Now, there are entities who have had a higher retention rate. Let me preface this by saying I am not an original thinker, Stuart, so I take a lot of good ideas from a lot of good places and give credit. So, But having okay. been involved in the NBS, National Brothers Skiers, as the executive vice president, the competition director, I did fundraising for them, I've coached athletes, their retention rate of a first-time skier, probably north of 70%. Amazing. Now, and the question is, what's the difference? And it is the method upon which we socialize people. So the, the MBS and their clubs, they will take never-evers, right? They will mm-hmm. bring them into their clubs. They will give them conversations about what's going to happen. They'll take them to a ski area. They help them carry their skis and boots once they have, you know, once they get there, because you know how tough that is, right? You've seen yep. individuals first time carry boots and, and skis. And then... You know, they'll go to their lesson, have the same challenging experience as everybody else, but when they come back, right, they have happy hour, they have a social engagement, they have a bus ride, they are connected. Mm-hmm. So community becomes a way of keeping everybody into the sport. And then the other side of it is giving individuals uh, a, uh, a path to mastery, right, to going from never ever to being good. There's another part, too, the introduction of winter sports, because there's more than alpine, isn't there, Stuart? There's snowboarding, there's cross country. It's interesting because if you don't know all those things, you only go what you know. But So let's talk about winter for kids, if you, if that's okay with you. Yeah, yeah that's what I'd like to talk about is, is, what is what is the experience like at the mountain for the kids, right? So... When they get there, what's that experience like, and and what is the the cadence of that, right? Because you're not doing one-off lessons, right? You're you're creating programs that immerse these children into the three different sports: skiing, snowboarding, or Nordic. So so talk about that. So w- when the kids arrive, what is their experience like from the time they get off the bus? Uh, you you said on your website you get them from bus to the snow with a snack in 18 minutes. Uh, frankly, Sean. I know what I'm doing, and I don't know if I can get from my car to the chairlift in 18 minutes uh, all geared up. So so take us through that experience. What is the kids' experience like both in that first instance and then through, uh, as they move through the program? Yeah, yeah. And and the first thing, to it, it starts before they get here. So okay. um, there are a couple things that we do. We We provide equipment and clothing, right, um, mm-hmm. We provide instruction that we describe as experiential learning. 
We provide healthy meals and mentoring. So um, when we took what we learned and realized the experience, like you just said, getting from your car to the ski area, right? And we said, how do we, what do we do to solve the problem? So we pre-provision kids. So each of our customers are those 69 nonprofits youth serving agency, most of them schools and YMCAs and Boys and Girls Clubs, you know, those youth serving agencies that already have youth development as their core competency, which came out of the best practices we found out. And this is who you connect with to, to identify the children that you bring up to the mountain. Yes. So 69, that's communities, cities, uh, and an average of 45 kids per each one of them. And you count schools as an individual entity, each school? Yes, that's right. So we go out and we measure them on site. Um, we do all of the, you know, the booth fitting and measuring there. And then when they come back, we actually have carts that are set up in groups of eight that have their helmet, their boots, and their skis for them for their six visits. And let me you know, stop and go back. Our program is six sessions, right, um, that are delivered in different dosages, six sessions, six visits, six sessions, three visits, two in one day, mm-hmm. or six sessions in one weekend, which is for uh, places that have come up from Camden or from Detroit or from Georgia. Mm-hmm. But... Their clothing and their helmets and their skis and their boots are with them pre-provisioned for those six sessions. So mm-hmm. here's how the 18 minutes works. We'll get, yeah, it should work because we made some changes again. But So you get off the bus. Okay. When you show up, right, you're greeted by a, a group leader who is like the camp counselor, and they're welcome. They go to their table, get checked in. They get a healthy meal or snack, depending on which time of day it is. They, everybody gets a meal and a snack. Mm-hmm. And then they'll go downstairs, and their cart is already set up with their equipment, all ready to go for them. Okay. Get their equipment on, you know, and we tweak things, and they go out the door and ski. So that goal of 18 minutes was to deal with the challenges of that hour and a half of rentals, right? <laughs> right? Right. But but also yeah. understand we we invested in equipment for every single kid, mm-hmm. clothing for every single kid, so that we don't have to turn it over. Right. So, so so that allowed us to mitigate that timing, right? Mm-hmm. On the front end, we do a good work, and and now we're able to to deliver. You know that that uh, and overcome the um, that first challenge of when they arrive, right? So once they're there, when you're a first year person, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and first year never ever. Your first year, you get introduced to all three of the sports: two alpine, two snowboard, two cross country. When you come back the next year, because we expect our participants to come back for three or four years. They choose which one they would like to master. 
And then we have a curriculum that's not based on time but based on development and skills that can let them go from never ever the expert in mm -hmm. any one of those three. And within those sessions, how many kids are you looking at in each one? So each session now is limited by our capacity of our existing lodge, 150. Uh, well, out on the snow, once they get on the snow, how many kids are in a, a group? We have an instructor <laughs> from one to eight, and we're making some um, changes. But um, it's been one to eight in the last five years. And we're able to um, make sure that we create relationships with those kids, right? So we have mm -hmm. now a group leader and an instructor. The instructor is the on-snow skill person. Right, the group leader is the cabin mm -hmm. counselor. I don't know if you went to camp. I went to camp every year from the time I was six to seventeen, <laughs> and and I ended up being, you know, a water safety instructor, which would be the skill side, mm -hmm. right? I didn't have a cabin, and they would bring kids out. I was also before that a cabin counselor, and so mm -hmm. we the key component for making giving kids the opportunity to master things is not just here's the skills but having a relationship so they begin to build trust as they take on this new environment. That, that, that group leader is interesting because their role is to not only get them from one point to the other, but to also deliver on the life skills, the, our values to virtue side, the ideas mm -hmm. that help them to be better citizens across a population that's from 6 to 17 years old. And, and interesting, mm -hmm. and you, we talked about this earlier, is that cross-cultural experiences are already inherent in what they do. So uh, our leaders from these participating organizations speak to the fact that, Sean, at Winter for Kids, you guys have always been doing that. So as a matter of course of what we do, we are creating an environment to influence behaviors, to build on changes that need to happen in our society we do that as part of our program. Yeah, it, it's remarkable the way that you've built it into uh, it, it, not just something that they come and try out, but something that they become part of, right? And and something that they then feel like they can belong to. And I think a big part of that then as you advance and get better is is uh, getting into these competitive programs that you have. So can you talk about these a little bit? Uh, how do kids get involved? Are these, Do these tend to be children who have gone through your programs and zeroed in on a preference for one sport or the other? Or do you also recruit from the, for these programs outside of those six-session programs? Tell us about the competitive programs and, and, uh, and how you recruit for them. Right. The, our competitive programs are meant to be both an extension of the academy, but also a program in and of itself. So right now, we're starting now after these last couple of years to get kids to move from the academy into the athletic side. Now, in order to do that, because the athletic side is more individually based, we're, we are now looking at creating transportation for those specific individuals, right, mm. to be able yep. to get picked up because these parents and families don't necessarily drive and come out. Right. In, a, in addition, you know the cost of com competitive programs. So we mitigate that by making sure that we have access to the appropriate equipment for a competitive side, all of the fees that are necessary, and continue with the development of each and one of those individuals. 
Uh, so right now, that's that's starting to pick up now, Stuart. Right? Because you know, mm-hmm. you know, we started this in 2015. So now, you know, there've been a number of kids who've been through three or four years, and now we're, we're in our curriculum. We're making it more thoughtful to increase. I mean, I shouldn't say increase. To introduce, right, some form of athletic competition. Here's an example. Most of the time, we think of competition in skiing as gates, right, for alpine and for snowboarding as well. And those things do exist. But the other part is Nordic, right? And one of the things with Nordic is that typically that's kind of like a a track meet, right? You know, you're a, you're a, a a miler or a half mile going around a loop. Well, when we added the Nordic facility and the Nordic program. With the help of one of our board members, Helen Ingebrigtsen, who ran the development organization for the Norwegian Ski Federation, we took this experiential learning that they use and introduced mm-hmm. it in both alpine and snowboarding and Nordic and cross country. In cross country, what that is is like if you know ski across, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there is now a thing called Nordic it's ski, it's cross country cross, which is a series of obstacles in a loop, you know, hills and, and whiffordills and those things, right? Upon which they they go around and compete at. And so, actually, but we use games that the kids play in in alpine, um, cross country, and Nordic to have them develop skills, so that as they as they learn. By playing the games, they also develop the skills to compete. And so now we're going to much more directive and trying to move those kids across. The evolution is, is really cool, and it sounds like you have a really good long-term plan. And I know part of that long-term plan, Sean, is is to reach, uh, to be financially self-sustaining. And I want to talk about your financial model a little bit, only because I know there's a lot of people listening who are going to be like, wow, that's really cool. How can I do that? How do they do it? And, and can it be done? And, and there are a lot of abandoned ski areas, right? Like we have another one in the New York region, Tuxedo Ridge, which is up there near Mount Peter, not terribly far from you. Uh, and it closed down maybe eight, nine years ago. As far as I know, the chairlifts are still there. You know, someone might be thinking, okay, maybe I could replicate this. So so break this down for us. Uh, how do you fund the center and as far as a split between private entities and actual revenue, and where does that revenue come from? Okay. So the, our program, right, and let me, that's why I separate out Winter for Kids from the facility. The right. program of healthy meals, right, clothing mm-hmm. and equipment, instruction and mentoring um, can be done around $133 per participant. When I look mm-hmm. at the cost of food, about $42, that's seven meals and snacks. Uh, the instructor mm-hmm. cost is somewhere around 120, you know, um, and then the, the equipment and clothing makes up the balance of that. And you know, understand that you know we have clothing for every single individual, but you buy it once, mm-hmm. right? And right. so you could do this at any facility, right? In any facility mm-hmm. in the country, right? And, and use those metrics. Everybody has already the lifts in place, right? They mm-hmm. have lodges. They have a kitchen, right? You have to have probably different kind of instructors, but it's it's replicable as a program anywhere. The mm-hmm. physical facility side, which most people look at, uh, that's a little daunting, right? Um, right. You know, to rebuild and engineer, re-engineer what we've done here at the National Winter Activity Center, first of all, it's, it's a miracle and a blessing with the support of 
so many people who helped to develop and 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 helped us to raise the capital to do this. Okay, um, one of the reasons why it couldn't be a commercial place was because if you had to do this commercially with the capital side of it, um, you would have to have so many skier visits um, that it would be a not pleasant experience, right, just to cover the right. debt. So um, can it happen at other entities around the country reasonably, the 130 to $200? Absolutely. Um, should somebody choose to redo a Tuxedo Ridge or a Mount Tom or whatever, that's a strategic industry thing. Do you understand mm-hmm. what I mean? If if you believe that it's important to create new skiers, period, and to do it in a way that's sustainable so your return on invest, investment makes sense, and that there is a monetary benefit to doing that, then strategically there are areas that could be, I think, used to do that. But that's got to be mm-hmm. part of a bigger plan, right? I shared with you in that document, right, that had a spreadsheet in there, right? And and, mm-hmm. and I did that because in that spreadsheet, if you use some variables like retention, and our retain rate says 62% of the kids who came this year come back next year. You with me? Yep. Of that 62%, 50% of them will be converted into lifetime enthusiasts. Using a cost of of 3000 over your time, that's how much it might cost to create this them as a customer. And an average lifetime of average value for lifetime enthusiasts, which, which comes from, I think, NSAA, for anybody who's introduced to the sport who's younger than 18 years old. If you mm-hmm. took our, our numbers, right, from 2020 of uh, 3,096, the, the lifetime conversion number is 625 from that number, right, going out. Mm-hmm. And then you took that number and multiplied that, right, by yep. 35,000, right? Yep. And and what I'm trying to get to is is that $21,870,000, okay? Now, what I'm saying is that there is an economic value for doing this program anywhere because over the lifetime value, if you have a lifetime approach to to it, makes economic sense. Right. So with a return on investment anywhere, uh, sometime around, somewhere around $2.61 for every dollar, it makes sense to do that. However, if you look at the conversion rate and drop that down to 12%, which I did with the model, it makes no sense. You spend for every dollar that you spend, you only get back maybe sixty-two cents. The, the reason why I, this becomes important is that it speaks to the value of focusing on a different way of getting any individuals, but surely the non-traditional side into the sport, right? With mm-hmm. a means to continue, and, and the other means to continue becomes important. So remember, we talked about those 69 participating organizations. Each yep. one of those, um, we start a winter activity club. Sounds familiar, right? That club, that community, so that when they come back to their physical facility, they have a socialized environment. Then, this year, we actually had a number of them 
uh, teed up to go take a trip after their experiences with us to a mountain creek or to a mountain in, in Pennsylvania. We lost mm-hmm. that because of CV-19. But now right. think about that. Now there's one missing component. What do you think that is, Stuart? I mean, it, it seems to me it's it's what happens after, right? So where do they go? Or how do you create opportunities for them? Because you have this private facility, which is great, but then when you're done with that, how do you continue? continue? Right. And, 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 and so my dialogue with the industry and specifically the, you know, everything's kind of aggregating is that I believe that for every kid that graduates from our program after three years, that we should provide them with a season pass for 10 years at $100. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and if you think about that for me, you say, well, why would I ever do that? Well, because if they graduate at 15 years old, right, and it's 10 years, in the next five years they may take one trip, right, one organized trip. But the time when they're 20 to 25, they may branch out. They're out of school, you know, they're, they're, they want to do something, and they want to go with friends, right, community. And so they mm-hmm. might go to a local environment. Now, today we don't do anything to create future participants, nor right. does do any of the organizations create any brand loyalty, right? I want to be an icon player, right? Or I want to be an epic skier, do you know what I mean? Or any of those things. We don't yeah. do that. This gives the industry a way to not only to create some brand um, affinity, mm-hmm. but also to track those participants, right? To see how they are progressing, how do we move them along? I thought it was interesting when I spoke with a senior executive at, at one of the larger organizations that for them it's important that that, that that skier can stay in their local area or they might take one trip out to our destination places. To them, it's equally important that both of those exist because they'll do more skier days at their local area than they might do at a destination area. So mm-hmm. when you look at this strategically, right, and and as partnership, um, and of course that there is a, there's definitely a measure of altruism in it. The altruism is let's do something that not only changes lives but gives kids experiences. At the same time, makes us a better, more economically viable industry. It all works. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Vale Altera there. Altera, of course, uh, owns the Icon Pass. Uh, and I want to talk about those companies a little bit in relation to what we're talking about here. So the CEOs of both companies, Vale CEO Rob Katz and Altera CEO Rusty Gregory, recently distributed memos admitting that they were part of skiing's diversity problem and pledging to do something about it. I guess, first of all, Sean, what, is, what was your reaction to these memos? Wow, you just put me on a spot with this. I was doing, um <laughs> I can reframe it. Like, what what is your reaction to them as far as what they can do to make a difference and, and act on these things in regards to what you're doing? Yeah, I I think that it's a partnership, right? It's a relationship. I think that 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 conversationally we can sit down and to ask the tough questions about how do you do this, Sean? How does it make sense? Um, talk about their environments and look at ways where we can take something that's in place, demonstrably delivered over 8,671 kids, right, and mm-hmm. at least ha- has a structure, a process, 
to do this and figure out how do we make this work so that we have a sustainable strategic direction and activities. You see, because what I'm concerned about is that we'll do something transactional that won't be sustained. I actually believe, I, Rusty Gregory, I know Rusty because, remember, I, this came out of U.S. Ski and Snowboard, and so Rusty is aware of what we've been doing. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that we did, Stuart, was not to go out ahead of time and said, here's what we're going to do and we need your help and support. Um, we said, we're going to do something and we'll come back to you when it's done. I think it's time and we're done and this is going into our sixth year. What an incredible opportunity for us in the industry, right, to now look at a way to do this that's already there, right? So right. I think that with all of their memos, I think it's encouraging and I have hope that we now can sit down and figure out, well, Sean, what can we do with Winter for Kids? Can we replicate your program at some of our facilities? What can we do with other facilities? What are we doing industry-wide? Can we look at PSIA and say, maybe we have to figure out a, an additional model that's relational inside and, and experiential learning? It, it's, it's, I think the opportunity, it is for thoughtful, real conversations, right? That's what it is, and, and that's a start. And I think that, that the memos are great because now we have the opportunity collectively to deliver, right, mm-hmm. something that's tangible. And it's tough because I right. don't know if people understand how to do that, um, but at least now we have something that's here that we can at least look and say, well, tweak this or tweak that or, or let's use this, right? Yeah, it seems like the opportunity there not just for larger learnings and application across broad programs and mountains, but you know, Vale and Altera, they both now have partners or own mountains in the Catskills. Vale owns uh, Hunter. They also own Jack Frost Big Boulder out in the Poconos. And Altera recently partnered with Wyndham. I think one of the biggest challenges that we have in the New York region is that car ownership is much lower than it is uh, throughout the rest of the country, just because we have really built up mass transit, right? So it, a lot of people just don't necessarily have the means to get to the mountains. I think there's a big opportunity here for Vail and Altera to, uh, you know, take your graduates and say, okay, let's let's take you up to the big mountains for a weekend. Let's, you know, see, you know, you've you've started out, you've got a good foundation. Let's go to Hunter. Let's go to Wyndham. And and these sorts of little programs can really spark that love and, and make you understand, like, like part, of, part of the appeal of skiing is the adventure, right? And, and just make you see how big that world is. Yeah, and I think that's, it's it's now that we we can we can explore those things um, collectively, you know, and and mm-hmm. and that's why I really believe in this, and I'm excited. You know, um, the, yesterday's conversation was extraordinary, it really was, and and it was it was timely because it was a significant person at, at one of those, and and we talked about you know the same things we're talking about now, and how do we do that, and. And some thoughts, and you know, they have properties that are near urban areas. There, there are ways for them to, you know, grow their grow the sport in general. But aren't they really growing their customer base too? And some people say, well, well, these kids, they won't be able to afford this, right? I would say that's you have to think about that for a minute, because um, you or anybody would have ruled me out of where I am now, given where I started. Yep. In the projects, in the Bronx, right? You would look and said, that's not a future customer. I think we have to be presumptuous about that 
there are opportunities for everyone. Mm -hmm. And if we don't predetermine an outcome, we're probably going to be better off in total. Well, there's there's so much potential there, Sean, and I think you're tapping into a lot of it and starting something that's really special. And I, I know you started it a while ago, but really evolving this. Uh, we do have a lot of people in the industry who listen to this podcast. If they're listening to this now and they're interested in working with you or forming a partnership, how do they go about doing that? Uh, just give me a call. Let's, you know, let's let's chat. And you know, I, I say that, and it sounds you know trite, but. It's just talk. I mean, they can always reach me, you know, um, via um, my email address. You know, it's Sean dot at Winter the number four kids dot org. S C H O N E dot M A L L I E T at Winter the number four kids dot org. And or give me a phone call two zero one three eight eight six zero two six and just start the conversation. By the way, there are a lot of those conversations that have been started. To it, one of them was significant yesterday. Really was, and Amazing. it was exciting to have that and, and the conversation with Olivia Rowan at Sam Magazine, you know, and then mm-hmm. upcoming there's an upcoming uh, panel coming out of U.S. Ski and Snowboard in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm I don't look backwards to it. Mm-hmm. If I did, I could be jaded. I look forward and think <laughs> that now there's a tremendous opportunity for us to do something that's different and impactful across. So many communities, so many people, and the industry itself. So that phone number, that email, uh, would you be comfortable extending that to, say, a teacher is listening, they want to bring their class up, someone from a community organization, they want to get involved, or or what about someone who, hey, this sounds cool, I want to, I'm, a, I'm a ski instructor, I want to go volunteer there. Can they reach out to you as well? Absolutely. Any way they can. We're excited about being a place, especially for those individuals like ski instructors, or, you know, we're working through volunteers now because all of our staff is paid staff, but volunteer group leaders with corporations and those things and other schools. I mean, we expect to go from 69 organizations to 77 next year. This year coming up, this season, given that we are able to open with CV19, and mm-hmm. as our new lodge edition comes online, we'll go to five days a week and upwards mm-hmm. to 388 per session. You know, and I, I talked about the wow. sessions. I wanted to say we have three sessions in a day during the week, you know, mm-hmm. two during the day and uh, one in the afternoon, one in the evening, and then two on each Saturday and Sunday. All a lot of the schools come during the day during the week as right. part of their physical education or their social emotional activities within the school. Lots of stuff going on there, Sean. Last thing before I let you go, Shiffy's. Tell me about Shiffy's run. So Shiffy's turn. So Michaela Schiffen has been uh, an incredible supporter of us over the last five, six years. Um, I remember her mother and herself at an NSSA convention, I think it was in San Francisco, in a front row, us talking about getting um, more participation in winter sports. I think Joe Hessian was the, um, the moderator and I was on that panel. We held a NORAM, and with Michaela's and Ellen's Ellen's husband and Michaela's father, right, um, mm-hmm. passing away this year, and relationships with some of our board of directors. We decided to honor that family, right, and Jeff, right, who came from out of New Jersey, right, Great Gorge, right, with naming our competition trail Shifty's Turn. And that's the first Correct. thing that we've named ever here. 
We have lots of naming opportunities coming up, so those individuals out there who think about those things, feel free to reach out to us, but Shifty's turn. Amazing. Well, keep up the great work, Sean. I'm sorry, did you, did you want to say something else? No, no. I think this is an incredible opportunity, Stuart. I, I wanted to ask you, why do you do this? I, it's like I'm close <laughs> to the interview, but I <laughs> You know, there there was a lot of questions I had about skiing and skiing in the Northeast that I couldn't find answers to. Um, the the traditional ski media still does a lot of things really well. They're really good at adventure stories. They're really good at doing gear breakdowns. Uh, they're really good at focusing on the extreme athletes and and the the folks who live in the mountain towns. But I had a lot of questions about just how does this mountain run? Why don't you put a lift here? Uh, why, do, why don't you have any glades? Why do you groom too much on this mountain? Um, so I started this to answer those questions because I couldn't find them anywhere else. So, and I figured I was probably not the only one who had those questions. Um, and, and I have to say, Sean, your center has been on my list from day one. So I'm so glad we finally had the opportunity to connect. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And- and hopefully um, this is just the beginning of conversations. Yep. I, I will look forward to talking to you soon, and, and hopefully I can come check out the center at some point. Thanks, Stuart. That's Sean Mallier, president and CEO of Winter for Kids. How cool is that program? How cool is it that they have their own freaking mountain? How cool is it that the industry is finally paying attention to what they're doing? Sean said they built that thing the last 50 years, but frankly, I hope it's around a lot longer than that. Great work, Sean. Thank you very much for that. And thank you all for listening. If you like that, subscribe to the Storm Skiing newsletter for free at skiing.substack.com. You're missing a lot if you're only on iTunes or Spotify or whatever podcasting service you use. The pod is maybe a quarter or a third of what the storm is. There's lots more content, so sign up to see all of that. Stay well. Stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester. Talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.